Anesthesia Deconstructed is supported by National University's CRNA program. National University's CRNA program is one of the nation's top programs for CRNAs and dedicated to making you a successful CRNA. The program doesn't just prepare you for entry-level practice. National focuses on making you a full-service provider and gives you insight into what is actually happening in the industry. With connections to faculty with backgrounds in advanced clinical practice, academics, research, and anesthesia services management. Learn more at nu.edu. Welcome to Anesthesia Deconstructed. Science, politics, realities. Listen in as medical professionals join industry experts, Dr. Mike McKinnon and Dr. Joseph Rodriguez to discuss the latest science and medical advancements, the effects of our political climate, and the reality of today's changing healthcare environment. Let's get started with your hosts, Dr. Mike McKinnon and Dr. Joseph Rodriguez. Well, and culture is complicated. I mean, as someone who's taken over contracts from previous groups before, it's more than just the people you hire. It's the culture you walk into in the facility. And, you know, when you take over a contract, especially where non-competes are enforced, which, you know, a lot of times they are, um, you know, yeah. and, and as a short caveat to non-competes, the people who do all the work to get a contract should be protected in some way. So non-solicitations, non-competes sure. are reasonable. Um, but you know, when you walk into those places and all of a sudden it's all new faces on, you know, January one, <laughs> you know, uh, there is a lot of cultural animosity amongst people that you now have to work with surgeons, administrators, uh, techs, OR nurses, everyone down the chain, because now their friends are gone and it's your fault. So there's all, mm-hmm. there's the culture is the hardest part because you start off in the negative from like, you know, cultural dollars when you walk into a facility and take over a contract and it, it only, it, it can be softened by retaining those people there, but you're not going to retain everyone because some of the people are part of the problem. And so there, there'll yep. always be those cultural issues. There's the cultural issue between, uh, you know, CRNAs and anesthesiologists, there's two apex predators. The very nature there is that, you know, there is some, you know, headbutting over who's in control, who should be doing what, what the practice should be like, all of these things. And unfortunately, you know, that's a cultural problem just within our greater profession of anesthesiology. It's just one that we deal with all the time. And it, it, it definitely adds some friction. Oh, no doubt. I mean, I, I, the interesting thing about that, that, that dynamic is that I can point right now to facilities at North Star where physicians and CRNAs are working together and the culture is unbelievably positive. Like yeah. physicians really value the CRNAs, the CRNAs really value the physicians. So yes, that does exist. Uh, and I would be, I think, disingenuous to say that that culture that I just described is pervasive at every facility that we have uh, because it's not. But the difference is we aspire. We right. aspire to develop that culture and we know that it takes time. Uh, to develop that culture. So I do, and again, I'm, I'm pathologically optimistic on these things, but I do believe in environments where we have CRNAs and physicians working together, we can arrive at a very healthy culture where the CRNAs feel valued and respected and the physicians um, feel valued and respected. And there is a synergy there. I also know we have 
practices that are all CRNA. We have practices that are, as I mentioned earlier, all physicians. So it's around like, yeah, there are there is a natural tension that can exist there. How can in a ACT like environment, how can we make sure as a company that we run at those issues and make sure and it usually this is through more often than not getting the clinical leaders together, the chief CRNA and the medical director at that facility, getting them aligned. Right. That typically is like that first step if, to, to start to develop that kind of culture. But as we all know, changing culture takes time and it takes sustained effort. And so that's why, again, point two, most people don't do it. Right. And, and well, it takes it's, buy-in from the really people hard. at the facility too, right? They've got to buy in. For sure. For sure. For sure. Absolutely. And that's where leadership comes into play. Right. And say, okay, this is, this is who we are. <laughs> These are our values. This is how we're going to work together now, CRNAs and physicians, and we're going to hold each other accountable. Right. And in, in the absence of strong clinical leadership, that dyad at the facility level, you're, 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 you're dead in the water. Right. A hundred percent. So now pivoting a little bit to reimbursement issues, what do you guys see in there? Uh, headwinds <laughs> for sure. Right. So like if we, if we unpack what's happening with surprise billing and particularly as it relates to the, the, the rulemaking associated with that, it wasn't, this is going to shock you, Mike, but the federal government did not do a very good job <laughs> in the rulemaking process. I know you, I know you're absolutely flabbergasted by that. I am. I am shocked. Uh, but yeah, this well-intentioned piece of legislation, which we all agree, like let's get the patients out of the middle of reimbursement disputes. Like we're all in for that. I'm all in for that. Patients should not be balance billed. The, the challenge is the devil's in the details. And so through the rulemaking, the, you know, the, the federal government has given payers who are swimming in cash, by the way, swimming in cash, the commercial payers, They've given them significant leverage and that, you know, and, and, and they're doing it as we speak. You know, the usual suspects right now are throwing not just anesthesia firms, but other, you know, hospitals and, and other specialties. They're throwing them out of network and dropping down their rates. And in, 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 you know, during a period of time in which insurance companies have never had more profitability. Right. So there's that. Right. So and expect those headwinds to continue. Uh, for the foreseeable future, I would also say that you know the federal government is not really interested in paying more for healthcare. <laughs> so you know, like you know, it's what is eighteen percent of GDP today, uh, and they are going to continue to turn the screws on Medicare reimbursement. Uh, you know, and that's the trajectory that that's the trajectory that it's going. So that's where you know, at the end of the day, yes, it hurts anesthesia. Um, providers and anesthesia firms, but it also, and, it, and I think more markedly, it impacts hospital and health systems because that means we're going to have to ask for greater subsidies to support, support you know, the, the economics of the contractual relationship. And so it's tough, right? And, and so when you, that's why I go to like, it's the worst provider shortage in the history of modern healthcare. Reimbursement is experiencing significant headwinds. Uh, surgical volume has just been decimated. It's improving for sure, uh, and will I think normalize and then go up over a period of time in the very near future. But all of these variables, the three key variables, 
the impact anesthesia are all moving unfavorably at the exact same time. And so reimbursement is obviously a big problem that I would love, love to see the AANA and ASA work to work on reimbursement issues. And because like, these are like, just this is just bad rulemaking and yes. it's hurting, you know, like, don't worry about North Star. We'll figure it out, but it's hurting these groups, these, you know, these small groups and these regional groups, some of them, you know, are physician owned, some of them are CRNA owned, some of them are co-owned. And they're really struggling now in an environment where the payers have more leverage. They're having to pay more for their CRNAs and anesthesiologists. And they're coming off a period of unpredictable surgical volume. Like it's hard out there. And so I I mean, it's the first time in this last year I've ever seen subsidies at surgery centers. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's a really good indicator oh, yeah. of where, where reimbursement's going in anesthesia is because that's been, that's been a pretty much no fly zone yeah. with, because, you know, the, you know, ASCs are obviously profit oriented and they have been very resistant to anesthesia subsidies. But now, you know, the economics in some cases are just not going around the block. Mm-hmm. And so you're starting to see growth in subsidies with ASCs and you, you can imagine, you know, that's not going over well. <laughs> and so we're seeing, there's seen a lot of churn in anesthesia contracts and subsidies as these ASCs are looking to say, wait a minute, I haven't ever had to pay a subsidy to an anesthesia firm. I'm going to go do an RFP. And they call Northstar and we say, guess what? We need a subsidy. And mm-hmm. so uh, you're seeing a lot of those conversations happen right now. And you're, you're going to see, I think, a ton of, of churn in the anesthesia ASC market. Um, and obviously surgical volume is out migrating to the AFC. So yeah. that should help, you know, with the volume, but still, I think, you know, the, the, the key issue here is provider compensation, right? So anesthesiologists and CRNA compensation has gone up significantly. And I don't really have a beef with that. To be honest with you, I think the market is what the market is, but that, that absolutely impacts the finances of anyone who's in the business of employing clinicians. Well, it sure does. I mean, you know, looking at the difference between how a hospital outpatient surgery department, for example, versus an, a true ASC, that hospital outpatient surgery department or the hospital operating room, which effectively that's just an extension of the same thing, they bill, uh, you know, 40% more for facility fees than a true ASC can. They get about 60% of what a hospital gets. And so mm-hmm. on that facility fee side, there's a 40% dearth you know, a, a, re- a revenue cliff there that, that the ASC loses, and then we're asking them for subsidies. So though there is a pressure from both Medicare, as you see them opening them up, what can be reimbursed, like total hips, total knees, total shoulder, all mm-hmm. these things that are we're now doing at ASCs that would never have been thought of just three years ago um, or five years ago, you know, even some cardiology procedures, all these things being, like you said, outsourced to these ASCs, the volume's coming, but the facility reimbursement is not. And so, you know, when people ask where that, why does a hospital get an extra 40%? Well, that's because they take care of indigent care, right? Yeah. You know, so everyone who comes into the hospital that, you know, falls under, um, you know, no insurance, underinsured, whatever, uh, or maybe, you know, maybe you're coming from another country and don't have any insurance or any money and don't pay a bill. All those people that fall under that umbrella, that's why hospitals get more money for their facility fee to help cover those costs. But that same money helps cover anesthesia subsidies and other subsidies, cost of employees, whatever. You know, when you see less volume coming into the hospital, you've got 
two major problems. The hospital might be getting subsidies, but they're not getting as much as they were because their facility fee is based upon people coming into the OR too. So as it out-migrates to the surgery centers, the surgery centers may get more money, but they get less than the hospital would. The hospital gets less volume, so they get less money. And so everyone has a downward pressure on what they're making, and we're all asking for a subsidy. And so it, it becomes a definite you know, pressure point for, for both facilities. And, you know, you you just look as an anesthesia company owner, it's the hardest time to ever be involved. You know, I mean, we've got seven partners in our group and we talk about it all the time. I mean, it's just, it is the worst time to be running a company in anesthesia because no one wants to pay. Everyone wants all the services. Everyone wants it for less. And you're saying, yeah, it's going to be double that because we just, it's not worth it for me to put the work in otherwise. And that's just where we are. Right. Yeah. So it is definitely a tough time. Yeah. And I think that's a really articulate expla- you know, explanation of, of where we're at, where I think things are going, how things are going to look for the foreseeable future. Now, the good news is, Mike, if you're a CRNA <laughs> and, and you are, you know, you have more options than you've ever had. Yeah. And sure. so and so that's where I go back to like, yeah, it's going to be hard. You got to put your big boy and big girl pants on if you want to own a business right now. And um, that means like some of the things you used to, not you, but like some employers would get away with in terms of the way they treat their clinicians, right? right? The way they treat their clients. Like those days are over. They are. Because the leverage, like in a supply demand imbalance, the leverage goes to the clinician. Clinicians have all kinds of options in terms of where they work, how hard they work, how much they make. And in that environment, like it, it is, as you, to your point, really difficult to be successful as an employer, as a business owner today. And I think it's going to be, it's going to be this way for, for a while. It is. And I think that providers as a group, physician, anesthesiologists and nurse anesthesiologists both see this very differently, right? From their perspective, they talk about what's your worth and what's your value, what's your value as a provider. Well, you know, truly your value of a provider is the revenue you generate. You know, <laughs> that's what it is. And then on top of that, it's the supply and demand curve, right? But the bigger picture is if if salaries continue to escalate, there's downward pressure on what insurance companies are willing to pay, what Medicare is willing to pay, what a hospital and an ASC can pay in subsidy. There's going to be a black hole there where something has to change, right? It's going to break. So, you know, mm-hmm. as a provider, you know, you're just making money for your family, for the things you want to do for your life. You just see it as if, if I can get more, I'm going to get more. Why wouldn't I? And, and there's nothing wrong with that perspective, except it's not sustainable with the other market forces that most providers don't understand. Right. You yeah. know, like, yeah, you may generate $10 in this, you know, X case, maybe let's call it a hundred dollars in this X case, but there's a billing cost and there's a credit card fee and there's a lockbox fee. And, oh, there's that hour you sat there waiting because the patient was late that you're paid hourly or salary for. I mean, there's all these risks that either facilities or companies bear effectively. Yeah. And the, the, for the, sure. cost, the only way that an anesthesia company makes money is when you're doing anesthesia. <laughs> you know, there's no other way. So that, there's no other process. If you're not sitting in the OR providing a service, then you're not generating revenue, but you're a cost center. And yeah. it's not sustainable well, forever. For sure. And, and another thing is like, you know, in, in most, in most scenarios, 
if you look at your average anesthesia business, whether it's a small company or a large company, something north of like 80, maybe 85% of all of your cost is labor, easy clinician labor, right? And so uh, with that in mind, and by the way, and which get, often gets lost in the know your worth conversations that I've been privy to over the years or in Facebook, you know, some of the Facebook dialogue is that people fail to understand in many cases that, you know, as I mentioned earlier, in, in many cases, somewhere between 30 and 40% of your salary is actually subsidized by the hospital mm-hmm. if you're employed by an by an outside outsourced anesthesia firm. And so, yes, you're, you're, you are very, if you are an anesthesia clinician, you are a very valuable member of the perioperative team. You're a very valuable member of the overall healthcare ecosystem. But your value is less related to the the money you generate than people are telling you. <laughs> it's more your value is that you're an outstanding clinician and you optimize patient outcomes so people can do surgery. Right. That and 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 proceed, you're a cog in the wheel. Right. And, and well, I, I wouldn't say it like that, Michael. But <laughs> I would say that like just like understand the the broader healthcare ecosystem and where you fit into it. And that knowledge only brings you more power, right? right. And I think, I think we have to, whether it's physicians or CRNAs, we have to be better at helping, you know, the people when they're in the graduate programs or with early career CRNAs or physicians understand the economics of healthcare sure. and, and how these things play out with business decisions that For occur sure. with these hospitals. Well, and there's long-term considerations, right? Like, you know, maybe right now things are tough and the hospital is desperate for anesthesia services and nobody has employees. So you go in there and say, look, we're going to need a 20% increase in our subsidy. And they're aghast at that. But you, but you press the levers that you know, they have no choice when that market shifts again. And it will, when that market shifts your contract will be the first one up for RFP. <laughs> so, you know, you gotta, yeah. you also have to play nice in the sandbox, right? I mean, yeah. and, and, and that's really true for small facilities that aren't wealthy to begin with. You know, you, you gotta yeah. take everything into account there and that's the reality. For sure. And, and that's where I think about this in so short term right now, the name of the game is, can you recruit and retain people? Full stop. Right. If the answer is yes, your contract is likely is likely stable yes. unless you're a real jerk, unless you're just a huge jerk. If the answer is no, get ready because you're going to be RFP. Yeah. For sure. And, and that, that's, that's where we're at full stop. And we're, we're seeing this today. If you look at our business development pipeline and I would tell you the number one and number two predictors of whether someone's going to get RFP. Number one is going to be, you're unable to recruit and retain clinical talent. And, and the hospital has had enough. Yeah. Exactly. Number two is, number two is, is hubris <laughs> where mm-hmm. you start telling people no. Right. So right now health, you know, hospital leaders think they can grow out of this problem. Meaning like we're going to extend service lines. We're extend points of service. And if you sit across the table and say, no, not interested, get ready because you're going to lose your contract yep. because they think they can grow out of this problem. They're, in more cases than not, they're wrong, but you have to go, you have to have that dance with them. 
Sure. And so what I would say is like when I look at and I'm talking about business that we're taking from big companies, big competitors, similar size or larger competitors, they're not developing a close partnership with the hospital. They're treating their hospital and health system like an ATM. Yes. And 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 that will push them to RFP, even if it means they need to pay pay more subsidy in the long term. Because the day of the days of this this thing will normalize at some point in time. And to your point, if you're not showing up as a partner, the hospitals are going to make a, a business decision to exit out of that contract with you. Yeah. Yeah. If they don't see you as a uh, all boats rise with a rising tide partner, um, then, then all you are is a cost center. And so yeah. you've got to bring value added service to these contracts, which is, you know, is more than just skills, chronic pain, acute care pain blocks, whatever, all these things are value added services, but it's also your interaction in the C-suite, which is a value added service. And they say, Hey, we really want to do this. Then what you say is, okay, let's see how we can do it and what that cost might be. You know, the answer is always yes. The question is how much is it going to cost and how can we manage to, to, to meet your, your needs? You know, that's the, that's the, the way, you know, the, basically the business driven perspective, you know, you you're trying to provide the service and you want to maintain the line. So you also want to be reasonable, you know, have a conversation about it and see what you can do to make that happen. Yeah, exactly. And I think some people lose sight of the fact because, you know, even like in these big companies is because we're talking about, you know, big contracts and all of that. You're dealing with, you know, high powered executives at the health system and at the hospital level. But if they, like this is a relationship business, mm-hmm. what we do. If, if you're in leadership, if you are an anesthesia professional and you're in leadership at any capacity, you're in the relationship business. And if you're, not really thought, if you're not really thoughtful about developing those relationships, whether it's with your clinical teams or whether it's with your clients, uh, you're, you're, you're in big trouble because people, even high-powered executives, value, the, value relationships and they want to feel like you're a partner. And you want, they want you to know their problem points, their pain points, so you can help them, so you can help them solve those problems. But if you show up and say, hey, here's your termination notice, <laughs> and uh, if you don't increase the subsidy by X amount of dollars, we're out of here, that leaves a very bad taste in people's mouth. And they will never forget that. No. Absolutely not. And it's, you know, look, on a bottom line perspective, it's probably not the right way to treat a business partner. And so, you know, you want to be accommodating whenever possible, but you also can't give away the firm. You know, there has to be a discussion about what services you want, either what then gets decreased or what subsidy gets increased. And that's just the nature of the business. And I think, I think C-suites understand that in the general perspective, they don't expect to get everything they ask for, but they're going to ask for everything. They expect mm-hmm. to have a conversation mm-hmm. and have a reasonable outcome. And they don't want to be surprised. <laughs> that's the other thing I've learned about human beings. If you sign- if you need to start, like if you say, okay, this is where this is trending. Uh, you need to start to have conversations over Early. a period of time versus, yeah, before versus showing up cold yeah. and saying, okay, uh, because they don't like to be surprised and they'll, they'll be very, they'll be very distrustful of you if you show up with a huge subsidy increase request without laying the groundwork over, yeah. you know, over some period of time. So when you think of companies in this whole anesthesia business sector, 
how would you characterize them generally? So, I, yeah, I think what we're seeing in the market is you have companies who are playing defense or actively retreating. And what I mean, or so there's that's category one. Category two, you have companies that are on the offense that are growth oriented. And so the companies that are playing defense and retreating, often what that means is they're, they are, in some cases, exiting out of contracts uh, and with intentionality. They're, they're just saying, we're out of this contract because the margin's not high enough and we're going to pull our providers out or at least attempt to pull our providers out and, and redeploy them to core hospitals that have higher margins. And we're right. seeing this play out. I won't call out any companies because that would be you know, not professional, but we're seeing, you can clearly see who is, who is in retreat and who is playing defense versus companies who are saying, okay, we get it tough out there, but we also think if we have a disciplined growth strategy, we can actually grow in this environment and be successful. And that's North Star's in that bucket, right? So I happen to think that, you know, it, it is definitely difficult. And there are times that we say no to contracts just because we don't think we're going to be successful. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, we have another opportunity where we like, we really think we should put all our eggs in that basket because it's in, you know, it, it meets all of our discipline growth uh, criteria. So if you have a growth orientation, you have to be exceptionally good at um, the due diligence process, making sure that this is the right partnership. Because a bad deal uh, where, you know, the bad deal, the characteristics of a bad deal is like the, it's a, it's not geographically close to any other facility. <laughs> so you're, you know, you're, you know, like you won't see us in California anytime soon, probably, you know, that and other factors. Uh, we don't have a high confidence in the hospital leadership or the health system leadership. So we don't think they're going to be good partners. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, those that, you know, so thinking about that, we think that it's a market that we will really struggle to recruit and retain people. Uh, and so those kind of three top, top three, really good about identifying those risks and making decisions, go, no go decisions based off that. Then I think we're, we're good, right? But doing that well is really difficult. The companies that are retreating, you know, there, there's reasons why they're doing that, including the fact that they, they have too much debt. So they, they're, 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 they're way over, le- they're way over leveraged with debt. And so they're trying to shed some of these contracts, uh, and get out from underneath that debt, uh, by focusing on these core facilities. And again, that's why. The good thing, interesting about North Star is most of our growth has been organic. I mean, we've gone out, we bid, and we've gone contracts. And we have had some inorganic growth, merger and acquisition activity. We go out and buy a company. But again, most of our growth has been organic. But because of that, we don't have a lot of debt. And so we're able to pursue opportunities uh, that we think meet our business or our, our um, discipline growth criteria. And uh, right now, where some companies are just, they're just stretched too thin with their debt that they can't. Yeah, we're definitely seeing that in the marketplace. There's no two ways about it. And I think so. Yeah. Pivoting a little bit about looking at contracts, what are the expectations of North Stars for, in general, for its, you know, CRNAs and MDAs? It, you know, is it a work, everyone working to their full scope of practice? Is that what everyone wants to see in North Star? Is it a CRNA only collaborative 
uh, anesthesia care team, open models. And I know from a business perspective, it's whatever the client want. But but what's the perspective of Northstar when it looks at both the CRNAs and physicians? What is the perspective of what they expect out of those employees? You know, when I look at, so it's going to be, when we come into these facilities, let's say it's a new facility, we come in. And it's often, to your point earlier, people are looking at us like, I don't know why you're here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we liked it the way it was before you were there because they don't understand all of the nuances and the business issues that are that were occurring. And often there's leadership issues there too. And so uh, so we come in and what we need to do is to be, we instead of us like saying, hey, North Star's here, things are going to change. This is what it's going to look like. We come in and we listen. Let's say, and and we really want to understand what the problems are that those clinical teams are are dealing with, and also what's working well. Like if we have a, I mean, like when we win a site and there's a great chief CRNA and or a great medical director, that is huge, huge for us because we know that chief CRNA and medical director are going to do an outstanding job in the in the transition, and it makes things so much easier, decreases tons of friction through the process. So to your to answer your question a little bit more directly, when we come in and we, we are talking to incumbent clinicians or we're recruiting clinicians into North Star sites, what I think about in terms of how we position ourselves is we want clinicians who really want to be a part of a community of providers where, and who really want to be focused on the patient and developing a really healthy culture at those facilities. and. Again, I think a lot of that is actually delivered by having great leaders at those sites. So, like in terms of contracts and stuff like that, you know, we just want to make sure that, you know, and and I think our position is probably evolving to some degree on this. Is that like I know that there's a lot of talk about non-competes and all of that, and sure. I totally get, you know, why that is scary and in some cases really off-putting. But we we're we don't want to screw clinicians over. That's our that's our approach, right? So, right. if you know when we come into a market and there's non-competes, or if, in some cases we still have non-competes in our contract, but what we don't do is we go out, we do not go out and sue clinicians. Uh, we just don't do it. And the non-competes are really about protecting the company versus going after clinicians, as right. you can imagine. You know, and so I think in this environment, you know, like, I don't want to, I, I, I don't really think about one size fits all because well we want this kind of model uh, you know at this facility it is really around like we're looking for people particularly leaders but also frontline clinicians who want to be a part of a team you know whether it's an anesthesia care team or whether it's an all physician team or all crna team we just want team orientation and we can work with we can work with that yeah, I think so. And I, I, I definitely see that perspective, but let me ask it in a different way. If you've got mm-hmm. like, you know, I did my research for my doctorate on what keeps CRNAs happy, what keeps them in a job. It was part of my, my doctoral research and I did it all specifically for the state of Arizona, but a lot of the background research showed that APRNs as a group, one of the number one reasons that APRNs stay in a practice, whether they're nurse practitioners, midwives, or CRNAs, is autonomy. So if they feel they they perceive autonomy is directly related to respect and and um and that feeling, you know, feeling part of an equal part of a team. 
as opposed to a dependent or restricted part of a team. So in contracts, when you're looking, when we're in a market shortage of CRNAs, right? And there's no other alternative that can fill the shortage. That, that, that's a bottom line fact, right? The only other alternative where there's numbers to fill the shortage is for all physician anesthesiologists to perform anesthesia. And that's not happening right now. So if that's not an option and there's no other current alternative that can do it, what, how, how do you perceive, maybe not necessarily from North Star's perspective, maybe it is perspective, uh, but how do you perceive maintaining that, you know, clinician satisfaction when you walk into a contract where the CRNAs are not allowed to perform blocks, they're not allowed to do OB, they're restricted from all these things. And so they have a churn, a turnover, a massive turnover because CRNAs, like all APRNs, associate that with disrespect and lack of respect. So how, how do you see that from through your lens, both in your new position and, and just as someone who's a, you know, dealing in the business of people, how, how do you mm. resolve those issues? Yeah, this is where you're going to get a long answer. So, so get comfortable. <laughs> okay. Cause that's a, that's a lot to unpack. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I would say, I, I, I think you're, I think your hypothesis is correct in that, and there is a mountain of organizational design uh, research and leadership research and management research that indicates that, you know, at, at the end of the day, whether you are a clinician or whether you are a computer analyst for ECME company, mm-hmm. that what you really value from your career is to feel as though you're respected, feel as though you have some agency, meaning that you have the ability to make decisions uh, that, that produce great outcomes, and that you, in many cases, that you see a path forward for growth, right? Right. So whether that's moving right. up in leadership or whether learning new skills or whatever it is, there's no one, any, there's not a rational person on the face of the earth who can deny that. It's sure. like baked into our DNA. No one wants to work somewhere and, they feel there's a boot on their neck, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. And so I think that, that supposition I, I can 100% get on board with. What I would say is back to my other comment that, you know, I don't believe there's a one, one size fits all approach to this, meaning that this, because this usually goes straight to scope of practice. It <laughs> so, does. You know, like, like yeah, let's go, let's get, yeah, let's get right into it. Let's talk yeah. about scope. And <laughs> here's the thing, like the scope of practice of a CRNA in rural Texas is undoubtedly going to be different than, let's say, a major academic facility in a metro facility in, in, a, in a metro area and to to say that like it's not going to be is i don't think realistic now you can and i believe this you can have an environment where a crna in that major academic facility you know there was maybe even an anesthesia residency there that crna that crna can still in that environment with a different scope of practice in the CRNA in rural Texas, feel as though they are valued and respected and have an agency and, and even autonomy. But it's like, how do you, the, the way that you approach that will undoubtedly be different. The CRNA in rural Texas is going to have complete full of, there might not even be a physician anesthesiologist in the building in that scenario, but they're going to have full 
scope of practice. And if that's what you want, that's probably the kind of facility you need to be looking at. And we've got those for you at North Star. If you want to live in a major city with a major medical at a major medical center, you'll be working with anesthesia, you know, physician, anesthesiologist, colleagues. And that scope of practice will be different. But doesn't mean it's mutually, mutually exclusive to this notion that people want to be respected and feel valued and they want to see growth, professional growth for themselves, and they want to have some level of agency where they see the decisions they're making are having a positive impact. And so that's the way that I would position it because I, you know, if you walk into a facility right now where there is like, you know, one to two medical direction and that still exists, not North Star, but <laughs> that absolutely exists. Yeah. Uh, one to three, whatever. And the CRNAs and the anesthesiologists are not on the same page. They're not even, they don't even share the same break rooms, right? They're in different planets and you kick the door open and say, effective tomorrow, CRNAs are going to be doing peripheral nerve blocks. Uh, you know, anesthesiologists will be sitting on stools. You're going to have a bloodbath on your hands. And so it's around like, and this is really hard work, understanding what the physician anesthesiologists need and want in that practice environment, understanding what the CRNAs need and want and finding with the Venn diagram that overlap where in this environment with the providers that you have, with the hospital administration that you have, the surgeons that you have, the acuity, the complexity, this, this model makes sense and it checks all those boxes, but it might, and it will undoubtedly look different than a model that would be in rural Texas or rural Oklahoma. That's the end of part two of three parts with Dr. Randall Moore from North Star Anesthesia. Tune in in the next couple of weeks for part three. That's all for this episode of Anesthesia Deconstructed. For more information based on today's discussions, be sure to visit us at anesthesia-deconstructed.com. You'll also gain access to our blogs, editorials, and more resources to keep you updated on the science, politics, and realities of today's medical industry. That's anesthesia-deconstructed.com. 